This evening, we're going to be spending time thinking about that proposed statement of faith uh, that the elders put forth at the last, uh, our last congregational meeting, our church conference in the end of January. Um, so we're going to spend time uh, in that now, so not the typical sort of sharing in prayer that we would do. Um, this is in lieu of that. And I just want to say on behalf of the elders that I'm grateful that we get to spend some time more carefully consider that statement of faith. I've been looking forward to this time together because uh, Christianity, at the end of the day, it's about news and news that we have to hear and news that we must believe. Indeed, the only reason that we exist as a church, the only reason I trust you're here is because we believe these things are true. Because friends, if these things recorded in our statement of faith, if they're not true, I guarantee you I'm not here. I trust you're not here. You're doing something else with your evening. You're doing something else with your time. But because we believe these things are true and they must be heard and understood and they're glorious truths, right? We want to gather together around them, better understand them so we can teach them to one another. And uh, that's important because at the end of the day, everyone here is a theologian. You may not think of yourself as a theologian, but we all are because all of us, as we go through life, we will believe something about God, something about this world we live in, Uh, something about ourselves. And the question that we always have to face as Christians are, are those beliefs going to be shaped by the world we live in or by the word that God has given to us? You know, and in the word, Paul writes in, in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And we see here just one of those many examples where Paul stresses the importance, really the necessity for sound teaching in order to have sound living. All right, so we can have sound teaching without sound living. Like any of us can be hypocrites. That is a sad reality. But one of the truths we see in Scripture is there can be no sound living if there is not first sound teaching. Because we need to understand how this Christian life works and how we're supposed to live in it. And that's where statements of faith actually serve us really well. Because they help to root us in these central doctrines of Scripture. They help to connect us to church history um, and that rich tradition that we've inherited. And so our hope as elders is that you will uh, come to embrace and increasingly cherish this statement of faith we've proposed to you. And it's important because at the end of the day, we are a congregational church. And as you'll see, as we get into Article 14, we believe, therefore, that Jesus and the apostles invested not within the eldership, but within the congregation, a certain authority, authority over membership and discipline and leadership and also over doctrine. So that's one of the reasons why we as elders want all of us, we want all the members of UBC to know this statement, to understand this statement, hopefully to love this statement, Because Jesus means for us as a congregation to defend it. He means for us to own it and to be able to defend it together. That Again, that's not just the duty of elders. That is the duty of the congregation as a whole. You can think of Galatians 1 for that. And the reality is you can't defend what you can't affirm. right? So we want to be able to affirm these things so we can do that. Which is why this statement of faith, just to put in categories, it effectively summarizes those things first necessary for salvation, and then those things secondly necessary for gathering together. So necessary for salvation, necessary for gathering together. Now I trust if you've been a Christian for a while, you probably believe much more than what is in simply this statement of faith. I trust you do. 
Um, but in order for these statements to build unity at a congregational level, they have to be both sufficiently clear on doctrinal areas and yet also remain sufficiently mere. Right? You're always trying to navigate that. It's got to be clear enough and it has to be mere, not too comprehensive, not too expansive. So you'll notice in here we, na- we say nothing about the millennial return of Christ other than it's going to be personable, uh, personable, rather uh, visible and glorious. Right? So you can hold to various opinions. You might be pre-mill, on-mill, post-mill, whatever it might be. You're going to say, I don't know what any of that means. I'm just pro-mill. I hope Jesus comes back. Well, you know what? That's all good and fine. That's what this, con- that's what this uh, statement of faith says. We're not, in other words, trying to draw the boundaries too narrow. We don't want to do The more narrow you draw the boundaries, the more you're going to perhaps unnecessarily exclude people from the gathering. And we don't want to do that. So to be clear, because of the corporate unity we want this statement to bring, we didn't draft it in mind to sort of stir up any debates within the body. We weren't trying as elders to sort of slyly put something through here under your noses that you wouldn't catch and you wouldn't see. We're not trying to raise the bar of theological agreement for the congregation. Our assumption is that the truths in this statement of faith, they're well known to us. They're well known to you, even if not all of the words may be well known. So why do I assume these truths are familiar? Just for background here, because if we look at this uh, proposed statement of faith, if we consider the the breakdown of it, the the vast majority of it comes from either our church's statement of faith, our current church's statement of faith, or the base document for that statement of faith. So the current is the Baptist faith and message, or the base document for that, the New Hampshire Confession, or this church's first statement of faith, the abstract of principles. So if you look at sort of those three, our current, the base document where we get our current, or this church's original statement of faith abstract, 75% of the statement comes word for word from those three. So that's why I say one, one level, we're just going back to what we've always believed. Um, about 8% comes from the second London Confession, which was drafted in 1689, 1689 by Baptists, uh, the 39 Articles, and the Nashville Statement. So if you're doing quick math, that leaves 17% that isn't directly attributable to any statement of faith. And you may think, well, that sounds high, but I don't want you to misunderstand that. Because a lot of that is in the form of conjunctions and prepositions and substitute language. So if you read older statements of faith, they often refer to the Holy Ghost. You know, we refer to this as the Holy Spirit, but, you know, you change a word and it's technically not in another. Um, whereas older language said that we ought to, uh, to be concerned for magistrates. We don't use that language anymore. This isn't 18th century England. We say government officials, right? So just we update some of the language as we think is necessary. And the point is, I hope, as you read through it, you didn't come into any great surprises. Again, we don't expect to be saying much of anything new. Um, and we don't mean to be saying anything more than we currently believe as a congregation. But you are trying to try to tighten things up a little bit. So what's the plan tonight? I'm going to read through each article. I'm going to say a few things about it. Emphasis on a few. And I'm going to take a question or two or three, depending on how the time is going. Now, if you happen to have read through it, then you'll know it takes about 22 to 24 minutes to read it out loud. And if we leave a couple minutes for questions for each of the 19 articles, you can do the math and you realize the time starts to mount pretty quickly. So I think what's going to be helpful, if you have a question, this isn't the time to say, you know, I've been vexed. I've always had this burning question 
on this esoteric theological matter, please explain in Philapsarian to me, Brad. This is not the time for that, right? So don't raise those kind of questions, please. If you can, just if there's an obvious question of clarity or you're not, you know, you're not grasping something, you want to make sure you understand what it says, you know, raise your hand and ask. It may be the case that we just don't, we can't get to the question because we got to keep things moving. That's okay, um, at least for now. Write it down, elders at UBC. Uh, Fayetteville.org. Send your questions in. We're gathering together. We're putting them together. Um, We want to receive those questions. We want you to talk to us. We are going to have a meeting likely on April 7th. It'll be an open meeting sometime on April 7th where we won't have a teaching agenda. It will just be field those questions, answer any of the questions you might have. All right. Before we dive in, any questions or comments about any of that? Okay, and just to be clear, we're talking about our statement of faith, our summary of beliefs. Don't confuse this with our church covenant. I think there was some confusion. Our covenant, our beliefs are just what they are. They're our, our credenda, our beliefs. Our covenant is how we intend to live those things out. Those are two separate documents. So we're not talking about our covenant, just our statement of faith. Okay, so let's begin. I'm just going to work through them article by article, all right? Buckle up, here we go. After I pray. God, we do pray, and we pray grateful for these truths, grateful for the chance to think about them tonight. We pray you would use uh, this time, you would use this time well in the life of our body, making clear our most basic hopes and uh, those things we cherish most in life, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. All right, first article, the scriptures. And just so you know, this article comes straight out of the New Hampshire Confession. We believe the Bible specifically the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament. And that's just there to clarify that that does not include the Apocrypha, just for clarity, that's why that statement's there. Was written by men divinely inspired, is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. If only we would open our Bibles every morning and think of that language right there. That it is God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter that it reveals the principles by which God will judge us and therefore is and shall remain to the end of the world, the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. All right, so four things I want us to see about this. One, Scripture is inerrant. It affirms that. Scriptural in the original autographs does not err. Right, It has God for its author, as it says. So we're confident Right, what Scripture says, God says. That's what this affirms. Second, it affirms Scripture is infallible. So because the Bible is true, therefore, consequence, it never deceives and it never misleads. Right? It's a trustworthy guide. It third, affirms that Scripture is necessary. So we can know true things about God through general revelation. Think Psalm 19. We can only know God savingly in Christ through special revelation, through Scripture And fourth, we know that Scripture is also sufficient. It reveals everything we need for life and godliness. So it's affirming the church is finally, it is guided by Scripture, and it is guarded by Scripture, and by Scripture alone. It's that center of Christian union. So it's the rule, the regula. Not church tradition as in Roman Catholicism. We don't gather around that. Nor reason, more liberalism, but divine revelation. That's what guides and governs. Comments or questions on that? Yeah, Jimmy. Any concerns about liberal translations? Yes. By the grace of God, I don't think we have one. 
they, but they do exist. Other questions? All right, I think it's pretty clear. We're going to move on. The true God, Article 2. This comes from the New Hampshire Confession as well and a few phrases from our current Baptist faith and message. We believe that there is one and only one living and true God, a personal and intelligent spirit whose name is Yahweh, the maker, preserver, and supreme ruler of heaven and earth, inexpressibly glorious in holiness, infinite in all perfections, and worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. That in the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal and every divine perfection, and without division of nature, essence, or being, yet each having distinct personal attributes and executing distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. Now, the New Hampshire was written in 1833, and so you can feel a little bit of that in there, but you know, you don't want to fiddle a lot with that language because we start fiddling with that language and you start messing up the, the goodness of the, of the statement as it stands. So this is just affirming Christianity begins with an all-powerful and all-knowing, eternal and holy and perfect God. So one in essence, three in persons. So we're monotheists, one in essence, we're Trinitarian, three in persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And just important to note here, this would not say or would not affirm that these are different just modes. These persons are different modes or manifestations of God. So this is not like oneness Pentecostalism. This is not like T.D. Jakes. It affirms genuine, historic, Trinitarian thought. And I'm not going to say more just because really there's nothing unique in here. But any comments or questions? Article 1 being before Article 2. Oh, yeah, is there significance to this? So generally speaking, um, because at the time of the Protestant Reformation, Catholicism wouldn't hold the Scripture alone, but it held to the teachings of the church and the traditions of the church and to church history, uh, Protestant confessions of faith since then have had to say, listen, you've got to begin with the Scriptures because this is our only guide and authority. And everything that follows only comes from there. So we sort of have to, we have to establish what the scriptures are and what they speak to, and then everything else sort of unfolds. So it's not that uncommon in um, systematic theologies. You'll find them begin the same. Begin with scripture and then begin with doctrine of God. Not universally true, but often true. Any other questions? Yeah, Davey. Quite a bit more information regarding the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Yeah. Could you just help me understand the uh, elders' thought process in leaving yep. that out? So I think um, one of the challenges, you can always elaborate and say more. Um, we felt like one of the things we're trying to do with our statement of faith, one of the challenges to the BFNM, and I feel this every time I teach a discovery class, is that it's so long that I really am not able to read through it and teach through it. I just summarize a lot of it. But I feel like that doesn't do the best service to the congregation and to those who would like to join. And so in terms of practically using it, I think a statement that is a little tighter and more concise and mere is helpful. And because I think this summarizes those essential things necessary about the Trinity, and because the BFNM 2000 just comes originally from this language, we felt like it would be a good statement to work with. If this was significantly under debate, we might feel the need to broaden it back out. 
within the evangelical church. Yeah. Any other questions? All right, let's keep going. Article 3 on divine providence. Now, this article, just so you know, comes word for word from this church's original statement of faith, the abstract of principles. We believe that God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events, yet so not in any way to be the author or approver of sin, nor to destroy the free agency and responsibility of intelligent creatures. All right, so what you got here is this affirms that God is wholly sovereign, right? He's in control. God is, in fact, in the driver's seat of the world, right? He's not in the trunk. Not, someone else doesn't have the wheel. No, he's, he's in control. He's got it. And yet his sovereignty doesn't render us as robots. As Christians, we're not fatalists. We make real choices, and those choices have real consequences. And the Bible affirms both of those truths. So if you're familiar with theology at all, this is sort of that notion of of compatibilism, that God is wholly sovereign, and we yet have real choices, and we're responsible for those real choices. And those truths are compatible truths. We can't always connect the dots as much as we might like, but the Bible affirms both of those things, and so we want to affirm both of those things. Any comments, questions on that? All right, we're going to keep going. Article 4 on humanity. Uh, Just for those of you curious, the first section of this comes from our current statement of faith, the Baptist faith and message. And most, all the rest of it on gender uh, largely comes from sections of the Nashville statement. So we believe that God created humanity in his own image, male and female, as the crowning work of his creation. Just think sort of Genesis 1 into Genesis 2. That his design extends over gender, where such divinely ordained differences between male and female are meant for human good and human flourishing. And over marriage, which is the covenantal, sexual, procreative, lifelong union of one man and one woman as husband and wife, and is itself a picture of the covenant love between Christ and his bride, the church, and over singleness, this is speaking all to God's design, and God's design over singleness, which is a gracious gift God gives to some in order to serve him freely without distraction and divided interests. Here, 1 Corinthians 7 there. And to remind us that human marriage is not the final destiny of anyone, for all who are in Christ will ultimately and gloriously be wed to Christ himself. Now, if you're familiar with statements of faith at all, you recognize statements of faith, they're products of their times. So if you read one in the first few centuries of the church, what are they talking about? They're all talking about the Trinity because that's what everyone was debating. A statement like this did not exist in the original New Hampshire. No one debated these things, right? But today they're heavily and hotly debated. So let me just highlight a few things from this. Um, This affirms that all humanity is equally made in God's image. So there's absolutely no biblical warrant for racism, any forms of sexism. Uh, It also affirms that though we are equal, we are not identical. So God has made man and woman, male and female. And gender um, is not a social construct, as we're often taught, but it is in fact given to us by God, and it is celebrated in the Bible as good. 
It also affirms that marriage is between one man and one woman, a monogamous lifelong union, um, and also affirms the gift of singleness. Notice that as well. Because, again, the Bible clearly does. Think to 1 Corinthians 7, as I mentioned. Though the reality is the church doesn't often affirm that. So the Bible often affirms things that we're not always good at affirming as well. So we tend to treat marriage often like it's a given when in the scriptures and actually in life, marriage isn't always a given. So whereas the world often is guilty, I think, of making an idol over sex, the church can often make an idol over heterosexuality in marriage. And that's something I think we need to be careful uh, with regard to that. So friends, I don't think that serves us well. Because actually one of the things you see in the New Testament is the trajectory of the New Testament is actually to relativize the importance of marriage, human marriage, and biological kinship. So I think one author summed it up well. He said, a spouse in a minivan full of kids on the way to Disney World is a sweet gift and a terrible God. If everything in the Christian community involves being married with children, we shouldn't be surprised when singleness and celibacy feel like a death sentence. So we just felt like it was important to include a positive sentence on singleness, especially if we're going to be the kind of church where those who are fraught with same-sex attraction and thus may never be able to marry, but they want to be faithful in following Christ, they know what it was looked like to do here. They feel welcomed and encouraged to do that as those who are fully human and not like subhuman or JV because they're not married. Comments or questions on that? Yeah, Jacob. said it's a gracious gift god gives to some yeah so in there would you uh, as elders be able to just clarify are you saying that being single is not the same thing as the gift of singleness or are those two uh similar yeah so like when you're eight what about if you're 28 if, if, yeah if, if you're 28 <laughs> if you're 28 um i assume if you are single and seeking to faithfully follow God as a Christian, mm. um, then I assume at some level he's given you the gift of singleness, even if it's a gift you might want to give back. Yes. But if you are faithfully following him, and for whatever reason, you know, male or female, you are not married, then I think in God's providence you trust, all right, in this season, he intends for me to live as a single man mm. or woman within the church, and hence I need to use and steward that singleness well. And yet recognize that it may not last forever. So I've known friends who were intentionally single and sought to be single and did not seek marriage. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, late in their 30s, the Lord seemed to change their life. And the thing that they didn't assume would ever happen to them indeed happened to them. Yeah. So when you say to some, you're speaking more to the state you're currently in rather than desires of the heart. Yes. Kind of at least. Yeah. Yeah. I am doing that. Yeah. Because I recognize God doesn't always orchestrate our circumstances according to our desires. That's the Christian life. <laughs> yeah. Any other questions on that? That's a good question. Yeah, there's a question back here. Mike coming right behind you. About, oh, sorry. You yeah. mentioned about having um, gender and race um, as part of kind of these contested issues. Is there a reason why race is not included in the component about humanity? and gender and, you know, your status of marriage and singleness is? Uh, good question. I think in, um, in stating that um, all are made in God's image, um, 
sort of male and uh, or all, God created all humanity in his image. Um, I think that's where we're just simply trying to assert and include that in it. It doesn't get more explicit that's true. I hope that's sufficient. Um, we don't tend to find as many today within the church advocating for racism through the scriptures and the way you do find people advocating for same-sex relationships in the scriptures. And so part of what this reflects, again, is it's a sign of the times. 50 years from now, that statement might look different, but it's meant to serve us today. That's a good question. That doesn't mean as a nation and doesn't mean as a church that we've worked through all those issues, though. I mean, just look at Virginia the last two weeks, sadly. All right, we're going to keep pressing on then. Um, on the fall, on the fall, Article 5, this comes, again, pretty much straight out of the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. Though originally free from sin, human, humanity voluntarily transgressed the command of God, Genesis 3, fell from that holy and happy state, in consequence of which all people are now sinners, not by constraint, but by choice, being by nature utterly void of that holiness required by the law of God, positively inclined to evil, Romans 3, and therefore under just condemnation to eternal ruin without defense or excuse. All right, so if Article 2 sort of highlighted where this world came from, this article is like, okay, what went wrong with the world? So what's gone wrong with the world? Is the problem fundamentally economic? Is it educational? Is it political? Is it familial? And this is saying, no, actually, that's not really the problem. The problem is, is us. That's the problem. We are the problem in our own sin. They're not structural problems out there. The problem is a moral one in here in our own hearts. We are rebels without a cause uh, in the truest sense of, of that expression and phrase. Uh, and thus, we've made really a mess of the world we live in, in our own lives. And so this statement affirms, therefore, what we read in Romans 5, that as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness will lead to acquittal and life for all men. We'll get to that later. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Comments, questions on that? Yeah, Larry. This one came uh, pretty much straight out of the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. Yeah, question over here. If if there's any specific um, idea behind, like, Adam being not mentioned specifically, how it has, like, humanity voluntarily transgressed, um, it just, like, if there is any specific reason for it or if it just happened. Yeah, so, um, yeah, fair question. The uh, So what the, the this first set is getting at, um, in Adam, he, as our federal head, we act out exactly what he has acted out. And so the, the punishment um, and the guilt of Adam is ours. It's sort of imputed to us. And yet we also voluntarily choose to do the things we do. So when we stand before God and he says, hey, listen, you sin," and you're like, it's not my fault. It was Adam's fault. He's like, no, no, you willingly chose to do those things you chose to do. No one was coercing you to do what you did. So it, it is affirming sort of original sin there in the garden with Adam, but also our sad fidelity and sort of solidarity with Adam in that sin. Other comments, questions? 
hadn't even noticed that. No. <laughs> that is a good, you know, I don't have the New Hampshire right in front of me. I'm sure someone could actually probably look it up and pull it up online. Um, and if that is an oversight, which it possibly is, like an editor would catch, um, then, uh, then perhaps we need to revisit that. Good question, yeah. We certainly mean to believe it. Do you have a question? Emily? Question about the titles. Um, I was wondering if the titles are also coming from those confessions. So, And if not, why call this one the fall rather than the nature of sin or something yeah. comparable? Yeah, it does. Um, who's, which elder or staff member will just quickly pull up the New Hampshire Confession of Faith and just tell me if it has we believe? And it does. Is it also the fall? I think it is. Of the fall of man, yeah. So it's just, this just shortened the fall. Yeah. So we're just taking it from the New Hampshire. As much as we could, we tried to do that. We know it's a Frankenstein document because you're putting things together, but we didn't want to make it more of that unless we absolutely had to. Any other questions? Not the best image. I think you know what I mean. All right. The Way of Salvation, Article 6. This is equally coming from the New Hampshire Confession and the Abstract of Principles. Again, this church's first confession of faith. We believe that the salvation of sinners is holy of grace, is accomplished through Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who is the divinely appointed mediator between God and humanity, who without sin took upon himself human nature and perfectly fulfilled the divine law, who by his death upon the cross made a full atonement for the sins of his people, and who rose from the dead and ascended to his Father, at whose right hand he now sits enthroned, ever living to make intercession for his people. He is the only mediator, prophet, and priest, and king of the church. You just hear Hebrews in that. And is therefore in every way qualified to be a suitable, compassionate, and an all-sufficient Savior. So this article is highlighting what has God done to save his people. And it affirms that sort of rallying cry of the Reformation that we are saved by grace alone. By grace alone. What Paul writes in Ephesians 2.8. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, namely our works, so that no one may boast. So it's highlighting God's work and His grace in our lives and that it comes in Christ alone. So we can't save ourselves Nobody else can save us. Only Christ can save us. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He does that right through his substitutionary death on the cross. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we sinners might become the righteousness of God. That does preach every time. The Bible preaches. Yeah, question in the back, that Vicky. Keep talking, Vicky. You'll come up. Uh, this leaves out the Holy Spirit. Um, and his we'll get work. into the Holy Spirit. Okay, but so we won't mention it here. Yeah, well, we mention it in regeneration more clearly. It's, this is speaking more to the work of the Father and the Son specifically. The work of the, of the Spirit, third member, comes. We're not going to leave him out. He's the shy member of the Trinity. We're going to give him his due, though. Any other questions about this? Yeah, the question, I think Debbie. Uh, we got a mic coming. The date of the abstract? 
I think it was 1858, give or take 10 years. So the Southern Baptist Convention affirmed it with the establishment of their first seminary, which was the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, and so this, the, a bunch of those faculty drafted it, and then the convention had to look at it, had to approve it. Um, and so that's the genesis of it. And because the first pastor of this church actually was a teaching assistant with like arguably the best Greek professor we've ever had in the United States at Southern A.T. Robertson, it's no surprise, just historical, there it is, why we have the abstract initially is our statement of faith. Uh, okay, any other questions on this, though? Yeah, we got one question over here. Just a picky point of clarification. I think yeah. in the scriptures that are listed down there, Yeah. it says Ephesians 2.3. 2, 2.3. 2, 3. I think that may be. Probably doesn't. I think it is should it, be 2.8, which is should be two, eight. quoted. Um, okay, I'm, normally I would task Ryan, Ben, uh, ben Seewald, I see you. Can you just make a note of this? And circle back. Thank you, Ben. Looks so dapper in his jacket. All right. Um, you look responsible, brother. I appreciate it. Feel like I can trust you right now. Uh, hey, just one thing that, just to be really clear, when it says upon the cross made a full atonement for the sins of his people, if you know much about Christian theology, this has been an area of some debate. And the question is, did Jesus die only for his people, or did he die for the whole world? What this is saying is what everyone agrees with. Of course he died for his people. Whether he died for the whole world and his atonement was unlimited, well, Christians differ that, they debate upon that, we weren't going to make that a stumbling block. So if you know some of these debates and you believe in definite atonement or limited atonement, you can sign this. If you think that's crazy and you don't believe in that, you can still sign it. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's look at Article 7, the freeness of salvation. This comes straight word for word out of the New Hampshire Confession. We believe, Sam Connect, that the blessings of salvation are made free to all by the gospel, that it is the immediate duty of all to accept them by cordial, that just means sort of warm and happy, penitent, sincere, and obedient faith, and that nothing prevents the salvation of the greatest sinner on earth but his own inherent depravity and voluntary rejection of the gospel, which rejection involves him in an aggravated condemnation. Again, just word for word out of the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. So this is affirming that the gospel, the good news, is for all of humanity. It's not just for a, a subset of humanity, right? It's for Jew and Gentile, male and female, young and old, black and white, all the bit. Um, and it affirms what, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, right? Today is the day of salvation. There's an immediacy that the gospel needs to go out. And when we hear it, we're called to respond, not to wait. There's not going to be a better offer. So we need to respond. It's our duty to respond. It's imperative to believe and that we have a genuine, voluntary decision that we have to make, and we bear responsibility for that decision. That's what it's really getting at. Comments, questions on that? Okay, got, we got a mic coming right to you. Uh, is this um, section um, against uh, irresistible grace? I would say no. 
It's not, it's not in opposition to it. They're not in antipathy with one another. Vol- that you can voluntarily reject uh, salvation. <laughs> yeah, I see what you're getting at. Yeah. Um, it is true for those who do. Some of you are like, what did that mean? Well, it means it is, it, it is voluntary rejection for those who reject it. That is a true statement. Other comments or questions? I appreciate that one. All right, we're going to keep going then. Oh, hey, you know what? That expression, aggravated condemnation. So if you know that passage um, in uh, Matthew 11, where Jesus, you know, is saying, woe to you, you know, cries in a Bethsaida, because if these miracles would have been performed in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented, but you haven't. It's going to be worse for you. It's this notion that when we receive special revelation, as they did, Jesus preaching to them, and we receive that general and that special, and we get all of it, and in the midst of all of that data, we reject it. That's where Jesus says it's worse. It's, in that sense, it's aggravated. That's what it's getting at, if you're curious. All right, God's Purpose of Grace, Article 8. This comes straight out of the New Hampshire. I think there's one phrase from the BFNM. And on this, this article, God's Purpose of Grace, it really answers that question, on what basis are we saved? And it's going to say, on God's electing grace. Now, I'm just going to say at the outset, you mentioned that word election in a Baptist church south of Canada, and um, it makes people nervous. It just gets a little nervous. But just we want to be really clear. Election is in the Bible. So the issue is not do we believe it. If we believe the Bible, of course we believe in election. The question is what do we believe about it? So we just want to be really clear there. So what do we believe? This statement says, We believe that election is the eternal purpose of God according to which he graciously regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. That being perfectly consistent with the free agency of persons, it comprehends all the means in connection with the end. That's referring to like evangelism, people sharing the gospel. That it is a most glorious display of God's sovereign goodness, being infinitely free, wise, holy, and unchangeable. That it utterly excludes boasting and promotes humility, love, prayer, praise, trust in God, and active imitation of His free mercy, that it encourages the use of means in the highest degree, that it may be ascertained by its effects in all who truly believe the gospel, that it is the foundation of Christian assurance, and that to ascertain it with regard to ourselves demands and deserves the utmost diligence. Ooh, there we go. So what you're getting here is strong themes, right? From Romans 8, you're hearing. From Ephesians 1. So similar to how God elected and called out the Old Testament people Israel, so he elects, he calls out a new covenant people under the new covenant to be his chosen. And yet that election recognizes that God, again, uses means, right? So we have to share the gospel with other people if they're going to get saved. He ordains the ends and he ordains the means, Both of them go together. That's just clearly taught in Scripture. Um, And that's indispensable. And that election, notice it says it should be a great encouragement in our own assurance. And that we're also commanded to ascertain it. Right? 2 Peter 1, to make our calling and election sure. That's something that we're um, commanded to do. 
Now, to be clear, what this statement doesn't do is it doesn't make explicit whether or not our election is conditional or unconditional. So those who would say it is unconditional would just say that God, in eternity past, has elected some. He has elected his bride, his people. And he has done that on no merit or no basis of themselves. He, in his sovereign grace, has solely chosen them and set his love upon them. Others would say, "Uh, I think there's a conditional element to it. Namely, God looks down the corridors of history and he sees who's going to bow the knee and who's going to submit to Christ. And on the basis of that foreknowledge, he elects again a, a more conditional. You can believe either one and happily sign the statement. All right. It's not trying to divide over that. Comments or questions here? Okay, we got a qu- you know, question over here. So this is just a kind of a general question. Um, when drafting the statement, was there any discussion among the elders of updating the language to more of like a 21st century 21st century, thing, Mostly yeah. so that it'd be accessible to everyone in the congregation. Because um, a lot of these are, they're, they're very dense and they have a lot of theological meaning. Yeah. But they're also very complicated and difficult to understand. Yeah. It's a legitimate question. It's a good one. It is something we thought about. I actually looked at a church that modernized the New Hampshire one of the things, and they actually didn't change a lot of the theological language, because if, if you're going to put in something for justification, all of a sudden that one word, if you expand it and double-click on it, it becomes like six sentences. Um, but they did try to sort of update it, but it ended up being really clunky and difficult. And so we just said, you know what? It is a bit older English at times, and some of the words like unfeigned and cordial, okay, do we, we don't necessarily use that language, so long as we define it and keep reading, and if you read some Shakespeare and, you know, some poetry in the last 200 years, hopefully you got it and hopefully you can follow. Um, our concern was the more we fiddled with it, the more we would start to undo that which they sought so carefully to make clear. It's not, it's not a, a perfect answer, but that's the tension we felt. Yeah. If there's, I think what I would love is if there's something in particular that you're like, I read over this six times and I get, I get it when you taught it, or I get it when I sit down and stare at it for five minutes. But when I just read over it, it's thoroughly confusing. And I think a little word change would really help. We want to hear that. We're not, we're not absolutely wed to this language, a preference for it, but like, we're not going to die on it. So do email us if you have those concerns. Other questions, comments on this? Question in the back. Free agency of persons. Yeah, so this is just asserting um, that we make... Uh, so I want to use the right language here. Um, that when men and women make decisions, um, they make, uh, if you will decisions according to their preferences and according to their desires. And in that sense, they're free. If, if you want to delve deeper, um, free agency, this is not referring specifically to sort of contra-causal libertarian notions of free agency where you can do A and not A at the same time and there's therefore no grounding to your decisions. It's simply saying we all act in accordance with our wills and desires and preferences and we're not constrained in that. 
So when I choose strawberry ice cream, it's because I genuinely like strawberry ice cream over chocolate. It's not because someone's twisting my arm. I don't know if any of that was helpful, but there it is. Okay. So if, if you want to think about just if you want to think free will, you can, you can substitute that. The reason why it's often not used is because you mention the word free will, and it means different things to different people. And so they tend to, theologians sometimes stay away from that language because it's loaded. All right. Article 9. What time is it? How are we doing? Yeah. All right. I'm going to pick it up. A little bit, because I really would like to try and get through as much of this as possible. But I genuinely, we do want to hear your questions. We believe that in order to be saved, again, this is Article 9 on regeneration, largely comes from the abstract of principles, some from the New Hampshire. But in order to be saved, sinners must be regenerated or born again. That regeneration is a change of heart wrought by, here we go, Vicky, the Holy Spirit, who revives the dead and trespasses and sins spiritually and savingly enlightening their minds to understand the word of God and renewing their whole nature so that they voluntarily love and practice holiness, that it is a work of God's free and special grace and that its proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance and faith and newness of life. So this is in many senses what the Old Testament longed for. If you know Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 and 37, where God's law would be written on the hearts of his people, that was not a blessing under the Old Covenant, That's what makes the new covenant new and better. And that's what this talks about, having that law written upon their hearts. It's summarized in Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, John chapter 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And John 3, 8 makes clear that this being born again is the work of the Holy Spirit. Just look at John 3, 8 for one example. Now, of course, it must be the work of the Holy Spirit if we take depravity sort of in that fall, if we take that seriously. If there is no one good, Romans 3, not even one, no one who understands, no one who is righteous, no one who seeks God, if that is true, then God must initiate through the Spirit to, to soften our hard hearts. That's, that's got to be His work, for He regenerates. And that's, again, that's what, the Spirit, that's what the Spirit does. And the evidence of that is that we repent of our sins and we express our faith in Christ, which is the next article. Comments or questions? So if you pick up a thing, logically, regeneration precedes repentance and faith. And that's not a unique Baptist teaching. That's what's what's been in all Baptist statements of faith, within the SBC at least. Temporally, they sometimes happen, it looks like, at the same time. But logically, one precedes the other. All right, Article 10, Repentance and Faith. This comes straight out of the New Hampshire. We believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties, also inseparable graces wrought in our souls by the regenerating Spirit of God, whereby being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness and the way of salvation by Christ, we turn to God with unfeigned contrition, just getting it genuinely, right? We genuinely do this. Confession and supplication for mercy, at the same time heartily receiving the Lord Jesus Christ and relying upon Him alone for salvation. So the previous article, what does the Spirit do in regenerating us? What's the role of the Spirit? We read that. This is our response to that work, repentance and faith. Any comments, questions? It's pretty standard stuff. All right, justification, Article 9. This also largely comes straight out of the New Hampshire. We believe that the great gospel blessing which which, excuse me, Christ secures to those who believe in him is justification. 
That, what is it? Justification is God's gracious and full acquittal of sinners, wherein he removes our guilt, reconciles us to himself, that it is bestowed through faith alone in Jesus Christ, not in consideration of anything wrought in us or done by us, but solely on account of his substitutionary death on the cross and on the basis of his perfect righteousness, which is freely imputed, you know, reckoned, credited to us by God, and that it brings us into this a state of most blessed peace and favor with God and secures every other blessing needful for time and eternity. Right, so just think Romans 4, that glorious truth that God justifies the wicked. Right, that's what this is. He looks at us and he declares us not guilty, not because of our righteousness, not anything wrought in us or done by us, but solely on the basis of Christ's righteousness. So this is like effectively the heart of Christianity. This is what the Protestant Reformation was all about. Because this is what Luther came to understand that had been lost. Namely, Jesus lived that perfect life. You and I don't do it. He died on the death as a substitute for our sins. So when the, the sinners were generated and repents and believes, all of our filth and wickedness, Jesus takes that. And all of his perfection and righteousness, we get that. That's the sweet exchange. That's what takes place. And Luther said that's the glorious news of the gospel. That's what saves. The Council of Trenton, um, in a, when was that? 15-something. 1525? 1525, I think. Condemned that teaching. What we understand to be the only good news to heaven, they condemned it, and they say, yeah, that sends you to hell. And that's why you have Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Um, yeah, questions on this one? Yeah, Jacob? Actually, not as much about justification, but in between this and sanctification, there's no mention of adoption very specifically or explicitly. Any yep. comments on that? Yeah, there's, um, so you, there are multiple images um, of what it's like to be brought into fellowship with God. Um, this picks up on some of the judicial language that's common. Adoption is some of the familial language. Um, most statements of faith don't usually incorporate all of them. Some of them might, and they might be a little longer. Not all of them do. We just sort of stuck with what the New Hampshire did on the whole. It's a good question, though. Certainly believe in adoption. Praise God. Question, comments, any other? All right, we're going to keep moving then. Sanctification, Article 12. Again, largely straight from the New Hampshire. We believe that sanctification is both the declaration that we are holy on the basis of Christ's imputed righteousness and the process by which, according to the will of God, we are made partakers of his holiness. Progressive sanctification begins in regeneration, is carried on for the duration of life in the hearts of believers by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the sealer and comforter, and the continual use of the appointed means, especially the word of God, the communion of saints, self-examination, self-denial, watchfulness, and prayer. So if you think about justification, that, that's how God declares us righteous in Christ. This is how we continually become more like Christ in holiness. That's what sanctification is all about. And it's saying it's positional in the, in the sense that we are made partakers of his holiness. We're declared saints. That's sort of our status. And yet it's also progressive and that it's something we grow in. And uh, we do that through the means that God's provide. And though it's progressive, it's never perfected. We never fully arrive. Right? We're not, none of us become 100% sanctified and without sin. 
Comments or questions on that? Question over here. So this is also kind of another general question from this. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of detail in, especially the process of salvation. Yep. I guess, what is the rationale of including that in a statement of faith? Because um, the more you pack into that, that's the more that everyone has to agree on, which in a way also excludes other people that disagree with that. I think what we're trying, what Christians have historically tried to do, Baptists in particular, is in statements of faith be really clear on those things they understand to be essential for salvation. So when it comes to Christ's atoning work on the cross, his substitutionary death, our inherent sin in Adam, um, the need for a genuine Christian to grow in grace, because there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't do that, i.e. sanctification. Christians have historically tried to make that really clear, whereas not making clear secondary issues. And so I think, you know, to your question, if, um, if someone, most of these things, in my mind, are right at that line for essential to salvation. Not all of them. We're going to get into baptism. That's not essential for salvation. But most of these things thus far are. But there are going to be some for which they're not essential. Baptism, uh, for example. Congregationalism, for example. Um, you know, what you believe about the government and the state. You know, you, we can disagree on Romans 13, and I can think you're genuinely saved. But on some of these issues of justification, the way of salvation, electing grace, they seem to be pretty clear and essential doctrines. That would be our conviction. Yeah. Can I ask a quick follow-up on that? Sure. Um, so then I guess a lot of these are also very technical theological things yep. that on the ground, like a person doesn't need to know all of these details in order to be saved necessarily. True. Very true. So is this, this is more of just like a document that says everything that we believe in as much detail as we believe it necessary to. No, not that, okay. but we are trying to succinctly summarize as much as we can while keeping it mirror. So I think what I would, what I tell people when I teach the discovery class um, is you can't have a settled conviction against anything in here or a settling conviction. So I don't expect everyone here to understand these expressions in all their detail and their fullness. I don't. I mean, compatibilism, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Like, I get to hear, and then it just all unravels on me, right? But I'm not God. I can't, I, I don't pretend to understand how he does all that he does. And so what I, what I encourage people to do, what I encourage all of you to do, is make sure that when you read it, you think, like, this seems right. This seems what the Bible teaches. I, I don't know if I put it like that, but it seems consistent with the Scriptures. But if you have a settled conviction, you're like, no, I actually think that's false. That is not true. Or I'm coming to believe that, no, I don't think that's true. I don't think that Christ is necessary for salvation or the resurrection is necessary toward the gospel. Then that's when I want to have a conversation. Does that help? Okay. That's when the elders would. All right. Perseverance of the saints, Article 13. This is largely from the abstract of principles, a little bit from the New Hampshire. This gets to, hey, can we lose our salvation? Right? Methodists think we can. Baptists say once saved, always saved. Right? What do we, what do we mean? We believe that those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by his Holy Spirit will never totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end, that their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors, that a special providence, namely God, watches over their welfare, and that though they may fall through neglect, 
in temptation into sin, whereby they grieve the spirit, impair their graces and comforts, bring reproach upon the church and temporal judgments on themselves. Yet they shall be renewed again unto repentance and be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. All right. This is like Philippians 1, 6. You know, he who began a good work in you will carry it, will bring it into completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So we do say sometimes once saved, always saved. I'm not a huge fan of that. Just because people crassly take that to mean you can pray a prayer when you pray a prayer when you're 10 and just live like hell for the world and it's all good. And that's not what this is saying, right? What's the grand mark? It's their persevering attachment to Christ. They continue to walk with him. So think of it like this. If you have this, you will never lose it. And if you lost it, it means you never had it. And yet it does affirm that we fall radically, we can radically and seriously into sin, but we will never fall totally or finally. Questions? All right. Catherine has a question. Um, I was just wondering about the term temporal judgments. Does that mean what, like, consequences? It means they're consequences for sins. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Like, if you get a DUI, they're going to be problems. Like, you're going to have issues with the state. I was just wondering about the wording of the special providence. Yep. What does that mean? Uh, kind of like God is just out there. Well. <laughs> you know, why it wasn't more specific <laughs> yeah it's uh, it's the language they use just it speaks to the fact that you know though we walk this life we live this life and we sort of have these real decisions and choices we have to make and sin is ever before us and we have to fight for that one who is truly in christ right god doesn't lose any of his own right christ doesn't lose any of his people none of the sheep go lost and finally missing he gathers them all he keeps them and he protects them and cares for them just think of much of john's teaching and so it's noting that special providence is a part of that Practically, that may look like you're in sin, and in God's grace, another sister calls you out before it gets any worse. Or you sit and you hear some teaching of the scriptures that encourages you, or goodness knows whatever it might be. Yeah. Yep, Jacob. Given the heavy focus here on perseverance of the saints, which I think is good, I was wondering why there isn't very much of a focus on the opposite, um, like on condemning antinomianism, the idea that you can live live and be saved and then just sin and yeah. live in sin when I think that is probably still an issue we deal with and people think. Yeah, it's true. I agree with you. Um, I think the best I could say is that it's seeking to a little more subtly go after that by referring to um, this persevering attachment to Christ. So, you know, the the one who doesn't walk with Jesus consistently for extended periods of time, like if they can't say that's true about them, then they have to wonder, like, have I actually genuinely accepted Jesus and walking with him? But I agree that there are a lot of people for whom they live that antinomian lifestyle. Yeah. Any other questions on that? Okay, we're going to keep going. A visible church. This is a, con- this is a combination of, our, of the abstract... Uh, of the New Hampshire Confession, of our current statement, the Baptist Faith and Message, of the Second London, of the 39 Articles. This is our most ecumenical statement, if you want to think of it like that. We believe that Christians are to associate themselves into visible churches according to the Lord's command, that a visible church of Christ is a congregation of baptized believers. So this gets right into the thing. This isn't essential for salvation, but if we're going to gather together, 
like we're either going to be congregational or Presbyterian. We're either going to be paedo-baptist or credo-baptist, and you can't be both. Right? So that's kind of what, so this isn't necessary for salvation, but it is in that second category necessary for gathering together. Um, congregation of baptized believers bound together by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, exercising the various gifts given them by the Holy Spirit for the building up of the church, that its authority extends over the membership, discipline, doctrine, and leadership of the church, that its primary duties are the reading and preaching of God's word, the right administration of Christ's ordinances, including the faithful exercise of discipline over its members, and that its only scriptural officers are elders or pastors and deacons. And while both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to qualified men according to scripture. Ooh, okay. All right. So a few things here. Uh, this does not deny there's such a thing as the invisible church. Right? This is, this is just speaking to the visible church. So, invisible is the church as God sees it, as it truly is. Visible is sort of we see it here. Um, we are commanded to be part of a local church. This is part of Jesus' teaching. Uh, implication of that from Matthew 28. Uh, I could say much more about that. In the interest of time, I'm not. Um, it recognizes that only those who have gone public for Christ through baptism are those who should be formally incorporated into the body of Christ. That's nothing new. Roman Catholicism, Greek Orthodoxy, every Protestant denomination has historically taught that. Um, that baptism is a prerequisite to a visible church. Nothing new there. That the Holy Spirit gives gifts to the church. Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. That the congregation has a job description. That's part of how we opened. Over discipline, doctrine, membership, and leadership. Matthew 16, 18, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2. I could keep going. Um, and that's key because that's highlighting right there. We are a congregational church. So much of this just says, yeah, we're historically Christian. Or we're not just historically Christian. We actually are historically Protestant church. We're not Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox. This says actually we're congregational. So this is where we differ from our Presbyterian, Methodist, or Bible church friends. Because we understand Jesus has given the congregation a job description. And you can't second that to another body. And the elders can't fire you from doing that job. And that's that issue of membership, discipline, doctrine, and leadership. Um, Bible says nothing about budgets or committees. Just for what it's worth. Um, but in those areas, it does speak. The Bible, uh, Bible does speak. The only offices are elders or pastors. Always, nearly, always occurs in the plural, nearly. Uh, and deacons. And when it comes to pastors, sort of both by example and command, that office. Just to be clear, it's not for all men. It's only for some men. It's not for all Christian men. It's only for qualified men, according to the scriptures. Think Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 Timothy 2, etc. Questions on this? Sam? Seems like it's written in a way. Keep going. It'll come. I think that... Oh, there we go. If you think that the office of deacon was limited to men or not limited to men, you could sign it either way. Is that right? Yes. Okay. It's just not speaking to it. Awesome. Because Baptists have historically been of different opinions on that matter. So the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention advocated for deaconesses. Some people in this state, you know, that creates concerns and angst. And so it's just we're not trying to divide over that issue. Yeah. Is there ambiguity on dispensationalism, covenant theology? Uh, I think I'd, I'd say we're not trying to draw a line in the sand there. So if you are come out of a more Dallas theological seminary, a, you know, sort of Louis, 
uh, Sperry Schaefer and, and the rest, if you Ryrie Study Bible, if sort of that's your heritage versus a more covenantal understanding, yeah, for the most part, you should be able to be able, we don't mean to exclude any of those camps. Yeah, Jacob. Uh, just curious, on the amongst the primary duties of the church, there's no mention of the advancement of the gospel. Uh, just thoughts on that? Uh, so I think what I would say is um, the... Uh, um, when it speaks to the various gifts given them by the Holy Spirit. You're right. It's nothing explicit. It's implicit in that Ephesians 4, the gifts of pastors, teachers, evangelists, those who share. So I hope we would all understand that it is the duty of all to go and to share the gospel given sort of the, the need, the pressing need of the gospel. Yeah. Certainly affirm that. Any other questions on this? All right. We're going to keep going. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, Article 15. Uh, and friends, I think, like, if you just bear with about 10 minutes, I think we can wrap this up. All right. Article 15, Baptism, Lord's Supper. This is largely from the abstract, but also from the New Hampshire and the Second London. Uh, we believe baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of Christ instituted by him, belong to the gathered church, marking off believers from unbelievers and making the church visible on earth. We believe baptism is obligatory upon every believer wherein one is baptized in water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that it is done by immersion to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior, distinct Romans 6, and our death to sin and resurrection to a new life, that its only proper subjects are those who do actually profess repentance towards God and faith and obedience to the Lord Jesus, that it is a prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. We believe the Lord's Supper is to be observed by his churches until the end of the world, that it is to be observed by the eating of bread and the drinking of the cup, that it is in no sense a sacrifice, contra Roman Catholicism, but is designed to commemorate his death, to confirm the faith and other graces of Christians, and to be a bond, pledge, and renewal of their communion with him and of their church fellowship. So ordinances are pictures of the gospel, so we hear the gospel in word. The ordinance pictures it for us, baptism, the Lord's Supper. So baptism, how we go public for Jesus, our public profession of faith. It's where the individual goes public, and it's where the church also affirms that. So the church is saying in baptism, we see and we agree. You have two parties acting there in baptism. And the Lord's Supper also, that ongoing depiction of the unity of the body and in the death of Christ. Um, and this, that last paragraph states uh, how we commemorate that together. Um, and that's where the church just becomes visible there at the Lord's Supper, at that communion table. Comments, questions on that? Yep. Um, so in the last paragraph, it says to confirm the faith and other graces of Christians. Yep. Is other graces getting anything specific or just to say that of whatever other things that are graces, it's to confirm those as well? Uh, I don't. I'm not aware that it's getting at something um, specific. I think it's just one of the things we do as we gather is we're reminding ourselves in that picture of Christ's death for us, of his substitutionary work, of the imputation of his righteousness to us. That's meant to bolster and encourage us in the faith. But we don't just look backward. We look forward to heaven, to that future that awaits. And all that works with the graces God gives to confirm and encourage us. That's what it's getting at. 
Any other questions? Yeah. Um, have the elders gotten any closer to figuring out their stance on the age for baptism uh, in the church? Yes. We're, we don't have an age. This might be useful. I think some feel like we have a minimum age. The elders have self-consciously chosen not to set like a minimum age for baptism. Um, we did put together a document where when folks want to have a child and they want to think about baptism, we work through that with them, talk through that with them. Um, and if you have questions, have you read it? Have you seen it? Didn't know there was one. Yeah, well, that's our bad. Um, so, yeah, so we, yeah, we have given a ton of thought to this. Because we recognize everyone has to make a decision and you either risk discouraging a genuine believer or deceiving an unbeliever. And that's a, that's a hard thing to walk through and it requires lots of wisdom and patience and counsel. Um, and so that will be of help. Yeah, I could say a lot more, but I think for now I'll just say that. Yeah. Um, how would somebody who has not been baptized through immersion, so say a PCA brother or sister, coming to UBC, would they need to be baptized through immersion uh, in order to become a member? How, how does the elders do, deal with that? Yeah, so the, the central issue in my mind and in this document is not the mode, but the subject. So if that Presbyterian brother was baptized as a believer, that's what is most critical. It ought to be done through immersion. That's what it says. That's what this church will only practice and do because it's the best picture of Romans 6. But the critical question I think that the Bible raises is were or were they not a believer? And in that sense, whether it was, you know, through a fusion or sprinkling or something becomes secondary. So if that Presbyterian brother, like Ligon Duncan, who preached here, he was baptized in a Presbyterian church as a believer. Okay, that's different than being baptized, baptized as an infant, because baptism is only for those who can profess faith. Uh, the Lord's Day, Article 16, straight out of New Hampshire. We believe the first day of the week is the Lord's Day. Just think Revelation 1.10. Is to be kept sacred to religious purposes by the devout observance, all the means of grace, both private and public, and by preparation for that rest that remains for the people of God. So this is emphasizing, you know what? The first day of the week, the Lord's Day, Jesus rose on that day. That is when Christians we see in the scriptures and historically have gathered and set aside themselves. Uh, for encouragement in the word, for fellowship with one another. Puritans called it the market day for the soul. They grabbed that day to encourage one another. We want to do the same, which is increasingly hard in the culture we live in when everything bleeds into Sunday. We get it. Um, that's what this is getting to. And yet it's also recognizing we're not Sabbatarian. So this statement, does, you may be, and that's okay, but this statement is not saying that there's something you can do on Monday that you cannot do on Sunday. So it's not saying that. Comments, questions? Yeah. Verhoeven over there. Uh, well, you kind of answered my question, except that I'm I'm still not sure that the statement really says that. Uh, I'm, I'm my question since I read this a couple of weeks ago was uh, wondering what this means for people who don't have any say over whether or not they their employment requires them yeah. to work on Sunday. Uh, yeah, so what Christians have typically, yeah, it's like a good that. question. Someone who's in security and understands law enforcement. Christians have always recognized works of mercy and necessity. Um, that often includes military, like first responders, um, you know, doctors, physicians, nurses. There are some professions for which you don't always have control over your schedule. And this is not saying that, you know, if you're assigned 
you know, police duty from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. on Sunday and you can't make the Sunday evening service, you're in sin by no means. If it means you miss the morning service, it doesn't mean you're in sin. Now, if you choose to always schedule your work day so you can't be a church with other believers, then I think that's a different question. Does that help? Can, can I follow up real sure. quick? Uh, the Baptist Faith and Message corresponding statement uh, specifically allowed for Christian liberty in matters of conscience under yep. the Lordship of Christ. I'm, my question is really is how is this going to be read by somebody from outside the church who may be coming in and has to ask the same question because yeah. it's not obvious that there is that allowance. Well, I, um, so I think because it's not excluding things specifically, the original New Hampshire taught, excluded, I think, worldly amusements and other things. It was more Sabbatarian, um, and this does not include those exclusions. So I don't think this says positively what Christians ought to do, gather with the saints on Sunday. I mean, that's just Hebrews 10. I mean, that's just what, that's what the Bible holds forth. It doesn't say you can't do these things. So I don't read this and assume, therefore, I can't or I'm necessarily in sin. I see this positively as this is what I ought to do. And I hope that's how people read it. That's what I, that's how I encourage you to read it. Okay. Uh, civil government, Article 17, straight out of the New Hampshire. We believe civil government is of divine appointment for the interests and good order of human society. That government officials are to be prayed for, conscientiously honored and obeyed, except only in things opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus, who is the prince of the kings of the earth. That may strike you as an odd statement, but Baptists have always had a statement like this in their confessions of faith, so that they're not confused with Anabaptists, which are a different strain. They're not really, they don't come out of a sort of a Baptist lineage. Different strain, um, and they were anarchists. And so others would look at Baptists like, you're like those anarchists. They're like, no, 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 no. We understand Romans 13. Like, there is a right and good um, function and purpose for government. Um, and they have the right to bear the sword. And we ought to submit to them, Titus 3.1. And we ought to pray for them, 1 Timothy 2.1. Why do I pray for authorities in the pastoral prayer? Why do your elders do that every week? Because the Bible calls us to. It's a good thing to do. 1 Timothy 2.1, go read it. And yet recognize that our ultimate and final allegiance is always to Christ. Questions? Was the Revolutionary War justified? I don't know. Let's not just get into that now that I opened that one. Yeah, question. Keep going. Yeah, just keep talking. Um, this is kind of just an editorial problem, maybe. Yep. Um, when I was in school, 19 was XIX, and I don't know what that is there at the bottom. Civil government, what is that supposed to be? The Roman Empire. You know what? Here's the problem. I'm, not, I'm looking at... Is there a typo? Oh, yeah, look at that. Yeah, that's a typo, all right. We'll get that fixed. Thank you. Yep, that's a typo. Yep, question. Yeah, the, the phrase at the end of that, except uh, only in those things opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, pretty broad language to the yeah. individual believer about yeah. when you may choose civil disobedience. Then. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Um, we just, we kept that language and that's what the church would get to work through. It's trying to say positively that at the end of the day, you know, if the state is calling us to actively disobey, then we, we have to say we're going to obey Jesus and not actively disobey. How clear that is, that's often really hard. Think of 
folks working in courthouses with same-sex marriage licenses, right? This is like where it became really practical. And that's where church would want to talk and have to think through it together. But All right, uh, on the righteous and the wicked, um, which would be Article 18, uh, right out of the New Hampshire. We believe there is a radical and essential difference between the righteous and the wicked, that only those who are justified through faith in the name of the Lord Jesus and sanctified by the Spirit of our God are truly righteous in his esteem, while all who continue in impenitence and unbelief in his sight are in his sight wicked and under the curse. And this distinction holds among persons both in and after death. Uh, so this just affirms what Jesus so often taught in the Gospels, how he divides humanity into two groups, right? Um, the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the chaff, only those justified in Christ are released from the curse of sin. So it's making clear we're not universalists. Um, you know, nobody comes to the Father but through me. That's clear here, John fourteen six. Also note post-mortem salvation. So it's not like we're going to stand at the pearly gates and say, I rejected Jesus all my life, but now when I stand here, like, I want a second shot. It's saying, no, this actual, this distinction is important and holds in and after death. Comments, questions? Okay. Lastly, on the resurrection and the world to come. Article 19. We believe that death is not the end. Praise God. And though this is coming to an end. That though our bodies after death return to dust, their spirits live on, the righteous departing immediately to be with the Lord and the wicked to be reserved under darkness to the judgment. We believe the end of the world is approaching, that the last day Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead, both righteous and wicked, from the grave to final retribution, that a solemn separation will then take place, which will fix forever the final state of persons in heaven or hell, the wicked being adjudged to everlasting conscious punishment and the righteous to everlasting life and joy. A lot has been written about how this world will end. You know, if you know how Ecclesiastes ends, you know, there's, um, you know, of, of the writing of books, it's much weariness and never ends. That's kind of how it feels like sometimes when you read books on the end times. Um, but the Bible does teach that Jesus will personally, visibly glorious return. We agree on that. You may hold to other beliefs about tribulations and raptures and a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. That's fine. You can hold to those beliefs so long as you can affirm this. Comments, questions on that? Yeah, Evan. Yes, I was just wondering, it doesn't seem to make super clear that our final state after the final retribution is bodily. Mm -hmm. I affirm that it is bodily. You're right, it doesn't say it. Yeah, we just took it from the New Hampshire in the abstract. It doesn't say it, though I do affirm that with you. Good. That's a good catch. Yeah, we won't just be disembodied spirits in the new heavens and new earth. We will have spirit and body. Other comments, questions? All right. You've been very patient. And I went four minutes later and I said I would. Um, here is the thing. Some of you, it was like drinking from a fire hose and I get it but I wanted to walk through it to explain a few things for you to hear it. What, if you have questions, if you have concerns, even encouragements, please do elders at ubc at fayetteville.org. Send us an email or contact one of us because what we're going to be doing is we want to keep having a conversation about this because we want you to be encouraged. We want you to increasingly own it and cherish it. We hope if we're going to vote upon it as a church, 
But if there are things that need to get fixed, like Roman numerals or we believe or other things like that, right, we want to we fix those, obviously, and we want to talk with you about it. And the more conversations we have now, that will help us to have better and more informed conversations when we have that open meeting, Lord willing, on April 7th, when we can just take any questions from the floor and uh, concerns you might have. And here's the reality. If it turns out there's a lot happening and there are a lot of concerns, there's no reason we have to vote on this in the April meeting. Like, our desire is to take the proper time so that you all feel comfortable with it and you think it's a good statement. And if that means we spend extra time doing it, we spend extra time doing it, that's just fine. We don't do this often, right? So we want to do it right, okay? All right, I'm going to pray and then we're going to close in song. God, we pray and we pray that you would be using these truths to even warm our hearts tonight. Um, that it might be something that does build unity amongst the body. Lord, we pray that uh, it is faithful and it is accurate. And um, God, we pray that you would use it well in the life of this church. And that as it highlights those things that are sweet to our own souls, about our own justification, about our own hope and glory in the future that awaits, even a bodily one at that, God, we pray uh, that you would be delighting us in and around it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.